And you can find the book of Ephesians, the New Testament book of Ephesians, and we're in the sixth chapter. And here at Omaha Bible Church, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and God tells us in His Word that His Word is adequate to equip us for every good work. And so we take the Bible very seriously, and right now we're working our way through Ephesians, in case you're just joining us, and you're joining us in chapter 6, and this is a section that deals with parenting. We don't talk about parenting here every week, but when we're in a passage that addresses the issue, we certainly are willing and and wanting to deal with what it has to say. I acknowledge, first of all, that there is no shortage of information on parenting, child raising. There is no shortage of experts, self-proclaimed and otherwise, on the subject So, why is it that I'm going to stand up here this morning and ask you to listen to me talk about it for the next 45 minutes or so? I don't claim to be an expert on it. I don't have a new book to sell. Um, I am just a parent. I'm not an authority on parenting. Why would I be asking you to listen to me? Well, the reason is because, first of all, I ask you to open your Bible. So the authority just left me and went to God if this is God's Word. I'm asking you to listen to me because I'm going to lead all of us in the study of God's Word. And God knows everything about parenting. God knows everything there is to know. He knows everything that's right about parenting. He knows everything that's wrong about parenting. And so we're looking at God's Word, a very important section of God's Word, to see what it has to say about dealing with children. And that is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, we are presented with what I would like to call two instructions that are indispensable to Christian parenting. Two instructions that are indispensable to Christian parenting. You have to know these two instructions if you're going to be any kind of Christian parent. Maybe you're not a parent. Maybe you will be one someday. Maybe you already were one and this morning you'll be affirmed. Maybe you're a grandparent and you can help your children in their parenting endeavor. However it may work out, and maybe you don't fit any of those classes, and like I always say, it's still God's Word and the Bible says all Scripture is profitable, right? So somehow it's profitable for you, maybe just to pray for the rest of us who need it, right? Everyone is somehow connected to this endeavor and it's important for all of us. There's one negative, one positive instruction. Let me give them to you now. And uh, let me tell you too, I'm no genius to come up with this outline. If you simply read Ephesians 6.4, you'll see there are two instructions and I simply observe them and, and here they are. Number one, maybe I won't word it exactly the same. Number one, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. That's the first instruction. The second instruction is also found in that verse. Bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we'll look at each of those this morning, but before we do, let's go ahead and read that verse. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You say we're going to do one verse in 45 minutes? Oh, that's nothing. We did one word in 45 minutes not that long ago. So somehow we'll make our way through this and we'll invest a significant amount of time. One way we're going to do that is work hard on application. Uh, God's Word is not complicated when it comes to parenting. It really is not. I mean, you're capturing the, the crux of the issue in one verse. Not complicated at all. 
It's a matter then for those of us who are parents or grandparents or however we're going to apply this to actually live it out in our life. So we'll be heavy on application this morning because we need to figure out a way to do this and not simply say, oh yes, I know that, I've memorized that verse, what should I do next? Because if you've been exposed to parenting at all, you know this isn't one of those things you just check off as the next thing you've done right. Agreed? Hopefully you've agreed to that. There is an interpretive question, though, before we get to the very first instruction that I think uh, merits some attention of ours. And that is this whole notion of who's the audience. When the Apostle Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is writing this down, uh, more than likely he actually wasn't writing it down. He was telling, he was dictating to someone else. And as he was doing that, and he's telling them what to write, who who did he have in mind? Who was he writing to? Who, Who was it being addressed to? Well, it says fathers, doesn't it? Right there it says fathers. And there's a lot of discussion uh, amongst commentators and Bible scholars and pastors and Christians and experts and so on. Is he really talking to fathers or is he talking to parents? And I think it's, it's important for us to consider that for a moment. Well, some people say it's not really talking to fathers. He's talking to parents because the context and let's, let's go ahead and see that. In the context, in verses 1 and 3, he's talking to, about parents, isn't he? When he's addressing children, he says, Children, obey your parents. It doesn't say obey your fathers. Obey your parents. And then it goes on to say, Honor your mother and father. I believe it's in verse 3. So context clearly is telling children to obey parents, right? And so some would want to say, So this is obviously when he says fathers, he means parents. Could be. Sometimes the word for father uh, is meant to mean parents. But personally, I'm just going to use the exact same argument and the same argument of context to say, I think he means fathers. Doesn't mean this isn't applicable to mothers and fathers. It's absolutely applicable. It's important. Please, all mothers, listen very carefully. You play such a critical role in the whole parenting thing because the Bible talks a lot about that and your vital role. But personally, I think here we should read it as fathers, maybe because I'm a simpleton, number one. But it says fathers, and actually the context, I think, demands that we have it mean fathers. He already knows how to address mothers and fathers in verses 1 and 3. So if he's talking to the same group, why wouldn't he just continue on? He goes out of his way to say, fathers! I think that's intentional. Let's have this be to fathers. This is a sermon today. This is a Father's Day sermon. How about that? It's not Father's Day, but it's your day here when it comes to parenting. This is addressed to fathers. Why would it be addressed to fathers? As I mentioned, the Bible says a lot about mothers' parenting and how vital mothers are. I mean, critical to parenting. This isn't denying that. But here's what I think is happening. The Bible's making sure we remember and that we understand that fathers are supposed to lead their homes. And fathers are responsible for the raising of their children. doesn't mean the wife isn't there and may invest, and in most every case invest more time, more tears, more affection, more love. It's not denying that. But the Bible talks in the Old Testament and the New Testament about men, husbands, fathers being responsible before God to lead their families. And so let's let fathers mean fathers... And let's not take men, fathers, dads off the hot seat. 
This is for you, first and foremost. Wives, please pay attention. Uh, uh, mothers, please pay attention. It's obviously impacting you because you're part of the same uh, parental team. But men, this is for us. And so don't, don't be so quick to say, this is parents, therefore it's mothers, therefore I'll take my nap. Fathers. Our God-given responsibility is to train our children. doesn't mean we're hands-on day-to-day. We do it all the time and we're the only ones. Nope. You'd be taking this out of context then from the rest of the Bible. But men, let's get real serious. You are responsible before God. This is a command we're going to see. To see to it that your children are raised in a Christian manner. That your children are trained. And uh, we too quickly write off parenting to wives and mothers. It's not the way the Bible addresses it. You're responsible. I'm responsible. That could be a sermon in and of itself, couldn't it? We just talk about this. I already feel like I'm sermonizing. I already feel like I'm, I'm exhorting and saying, men, this is important for us because so many men have abandoned the whole thing. And, and they go and do their work and I provide the paycheck, so to speak, and, and training the children, that's up to mom. That's up to my wife. It's not biblical thinking. Let me show you another example where we can, we can see this fleshed out as men are supposed to be an example. Men are supposed to lead in their homes. And that would be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you are familiar with the Bible, you know where it is. If you don't know where it is, you can just go from Ephesians and work your way to the right. Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, and then First Timothy. And if you'd like, you can just listen anyhow. But I, I don't want to leave this notion alone too quickly about when it comes to when it deals with dads and fathers. When we get to First Timothy, and there's qualifications for church leaders, elders, and deacons. Those qualifications are there so that we can know who is supposed to be a leader in the church. Now, elders and deacons are not somehow people who've arrived. They're perfect and, and we put them on this pedestal because, I mean, they're, they're a second away from glory. They're so godly. It's not why the Bible gives us the qualifications. But the Bible gives the qualifications so that we can make sure people who are elders and deacons are godly and therefore can be examples to the rest of us. And so, as a Christian man, I want to be able to look at at an elder at Omaha Bible Church or a deacon and say, I can watch them, watch how they serve, watch how they interact with their family, watch how they do things, and I can have a pretty good idea how to live a Christian life. So with that in mind, look at the qualification for an elder. It says in chapter 3, verse 4, He, speaking of an overseer, which is a synonym for, for an elder, He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. There's husband-father responsibility when it comes to his children. In fact, if we're going to conclude he's a godly man, he's got to keep his children under control, not with an iron fist, but with all dignity. Godliness is tied to men, husbands, fathers leading their homes. Leading their children. Or deacons in chapter 3, verse 12. There's no difference. Deacon is a word for servant. They're official servants in the church. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. They're committed to their wife. And good managers of their children and their own households. The same basic qualification is there. How do we, one, what is one way we can tell if a man is a godly man or not a godly man? 
He opened the front door, or maybe we should say the back door of his home. And we get an idea of, of what goes on here. And, and not because somehow they've arrived and they're, they're the superior ones, but so the rest of us can look at them and watch them so that we can learn how to be godly. That's all. So all of that to say, you can go back to Ephesians if you would like, that fathers are expected to lead. This is not a responsibility we abrogate to our wives and say, well, here they are, uh, they're your children, uh, take care of them. It's not the idea at all. Men, we need to feel responsible. We need to feel a great responsibility. Not that wives and mothers shouldn't feel responsible also, but men lead wives, men lead children. That's what it's assuming here in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, let's put Ephesians in context, too, before we get to that first instruction. Because maybe some of you men aren't doing this. Maybe you've just written it off. And maybe you're a slacker when it comes to your family. And maybe you are expecting your wife to, to, to bear the brunt of the load, and it's all about her doing it because, after all, you're a man. Well, that might be the way the world thinks, but that's not the way Christians are supposed to think. See, we've been studying Ephesians and we've learned in the first half of the book about all the great and awesome and wonderful and and amazing things God has done for us. We didn't do anything. We didn't earn it. We were dead. It was all God pouring out His rich blessings upon us. And it's just amazing and we're so thankful. And It's why the Apostle Paul responds in chapter 1 by saying, Bless God! And he goes on praising God. And now we're dealing with the responsibilities. Now that we say, I'm a Christian by the grace of God and only by the grace of God and and I'm going to live a Christian life out of thanksgiving to God, it's time to live like a Christian. And maybe this is news to you the first time you've ever heard that a Christian man is supposed to lead his home. It's a shame it's the first time you've heard it, but at least now you're hearing it. And, and, And forget about the past. Deal with it now. Be the leader that you need to be. Because God does want you to be the leader. I don't know where you learned parenting and if, or where you heard about it. Maybe you lived in a home where the dad wasn't the leader. It doesn't matter. If you're a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, guess what? Time to be the godly man now. It's not enough just to say, I love, I love Ephesians 1. We learned about election. <laughs> I feel like a man now that I understand that. That's great, because if you really understand it, <laughs> you're going to move into chapter three, 4, 5, and 6, and it's time to act like a man too in my home and really feel that burden and that sense of responsibility before God because God, in command mode, says, Fathers, oh, I'm going to pay attention to this. I'm ready. It has my attention. I hope it has yours. The first indispensable instruction to men, the first indispensable instruction to fathers, and certainly to mothers by way of implication, by way of application, because they're right there many times, as I said, most of the time, uh, putting more time into it than the men. Number one, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. That is a command, first of all. It's not an option. That's very clear. And it's also to be a constant. So it's a non-optional constant. Because it is present tense, as I repeat so many times. This isn't a one-time thing. This isn't something you should do on Christmas. This isn't something you should do on your child's birthday. 
It's a constant. A non-optional constant. Men, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger or to wrath, as one translation puts it. Don't provoke them. Now, this isn't saying, men, don't ever do anything that would make little Joey mad. (laughs) Don't ever do anything that would make uh, little Sally angry. Well, you're commanded to discipline your children, and I don't know any children who get happy about that, do you? It doesn't mean that you, do, you don't lead them. It doesn't mean you don't tell them to do things in your own command mode, present tense. It happens. It's not denying that in any way because the Bible is filled with telling parents to, to train their children. We know children don't always like to be trained. So it's not denying that in any way. That would be a, uh, a skewed perspective to say, well, okay, uh, now I need to be a spineless father. That's a Christian father. Who, and I'll never tell my kids anything that might make them upset with me. No, start reading through the Proverbs. Uh, Even read the verses that came before this where it said, Children, obey your parents, right? That assumes you're telling them to do things. It's not assuming that you're now somehow weak and Christians are weak. That's not the idea at all. So what is it saying? Do not provoke your children to anger. Certainly it's talking about needlessly frustrating them. You're going to do things to frustrate them even when you do godly godly things. But you don't do things that are going to needlessly frustrate them, cause them to be angry, cause them to be upset, cause them to to, to be discouraged. You're not pushing their buttons, right? Like we say. You know how to push their buttons and get a rise out of them and get them upset and get them frustrated. Or as the NIV says, you don't exasperate them. It's dealing with anger. It's dealing with frustration. And this could include things we do or things we don't do, right? It could include things we say or things we don't say. Whatever. Whatever it is that you do that causes your child to get angry when they don't need to get angry, and you didn't need to do that, don't do it. Or to discourage them, to crush them, to smash them. Don't do that. A.T. Robertson, the Greek grammarian who's famous for his writings, called this the common sin of fathers. Interesting statement. We're not supposed to frustrate our children needlessly. This would have been an interesting uh, thing to hear if you were an original audience. Here we have the, the Ephesian letter wouldn't have come with leather binding. And you get the Ephesian letter, and, and, and let's say you're real influenced by the Roman culture, as many of these people would have been. Roman culture? Kids? No rights? None at all? For the most part, disposable? And here is Christianity, in a sense, putting kids on the map. Saying, look, they're human beings. They're real people. They can be saved in the Lord just like us. And fathers, you have a serious responsibility Not only to say, oh yes, I will be gracious, I will not dispose of them, as you could have in Roman culture. Not that everybody did. Don't provoke them to anger. You actually treat them with with a certain amount of respect and care and concern. This would have been revolutionary. Don't provoke them to anger. Maybe a place where we can get a little bit more help in defining what that means is Colossians. And maybe you can turn there just a couple of books to your, to your right. In Colossians chapter 3, it's a, a bit of a parallel passage. 
It's not identical, but the Apostle Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and he's giving them the same essential instruction. And maybe this will help us men to get a little bit better handle on what it means to, to not provoke our children to anger, to wrath, to frustration, to exasperate them. In Colossians 3.21, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Okay, there we have it. Don't exasperate them. Don't, don't, don't push them to the point of breaking. We all know you're bigger than they are. We all know you know more than they do. You've got power over them. Don't push that power to the degree that it's just utter frustration with, them, with you. Interesting about the Colossians text is it gives us at least one of the reasons behind this command. It says at the end of verse 21, so that they will not lose heart. Don't push them to the degree where they just give up and they're just angry and frustrated and exasperated and say, just forget about it. And you can do that. Most any authority can do that to someone who respects the person they're hearing from. So I think we have a a basic understanding of what this means. Don't cause your children undue anger, undue angst, undue frustration. You do need to lead them. They need to obey you. But don't make them angry unless you simply have to by doing the right thing. But because this is so important, I would like to flesh it out a little bit and maybe look at some ways, some specific ways, that some families make their children angry. And to keep it a little bit more interesting, uh, I I gave these family names. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here again because we understand the concept, the idea, but this is really hard for us to do. So let's look at some different families that do cause their children angst and frustration and angry unnecessarily. One fairly well-known wrath-provoking family is Mr. and Mrs. Legalist. Mr. and Mrs. Legalist. These are the kind of families that you don't want to be. What's a legalist? A legalist is someone who says, let's make sure we do what the Bible says. (laughs) Uh, The Bible calls that faithful. (laughs) The Bible calls that obedient. And Jesus demands obedience. That's not legalism. If you're radical about wanting to do what God says, someone might brand you a legalist, but that's not what a legalist is. Uh, Someone who's legalistic is someone who says, well, that's what the Bible says, but I'm going to add to it maybe some of my own rules, some of my own regulations. And worse yet, you're not going to say, these are just my rules, these are just my preferences. You're going to say, these are biblical truths. You're putting your standards or someone else's standards on the same level as the Bible. Saying this is demanded for spiritual maturity. You get the idea. Some parents like to do this. Some of you might like to do it. You say, well, I don't want my children to uh, be out after a certain time at night, and so you're going to find chapter and verse that can prove it. Don't do that. I, let me give you let me give you a license. <laughs> your license is Ephesians six one to three. Children obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. So if it's not a biblical issue, don't make it a biblical issue because as soon as you did, you're a legalist. And if your kids are smart, they're eventually going to figure it out. Mom and dad said all this stuff was biblical, and it's not. And you're either going to do one of two things: you're going to frustrate them to no end. Or just as bad, you're going to create a legalist just like you. And they're going to do the same thing. So if there's something you don't want your kids to do, say, 
We don't want you to do that. We don't think it's wise. We don't think you're ready for that. And your authority stands because you're the parent and they're supposed to obey you. But just don't get Bible crazy and say, well, I think we can prove that in the Bible. Hmm. Don't do it. You're on thin ice. You're being a legalist and you're going to frustrate that kid. And they're going to figure it out. Eventually, I think, kids are pretty good at seeing through the whole thing. Just be careful. Here I am. I'm a person who became a Christian during college and I was raised religiously. And, and then I became a Christian and I was so... Uh, angry that I just was raised on religious stuff instead of the Bible, that I pretty much committed my life to saying, I'm going to know what the Bible says, and I want to believe it, and I'm going to accept it, embrace it, and I'm going to, I want to teach it, I want to tell other people, so they're not trapped in the traditionalism that I was trapped in, and that's a big passion for me. And as a result, it's pushed me into a certain camp, and I would be called a conservative I don't mean politically, although that may be true as well. I mean just from a Christian, from a religious standpoint, I'm a conservative. I'm a, some would say you're a fundamentalist because you're so, you believe the Bible's true. Forget the labels. It does make me conservative. But I want to be careful to not have to toe the conservative line because it's conservative. I want to deal with the Bible. What does the Bible say about any given issue? And I'm going to believe it. But if it's not in the Bible... I'm not going to try to proof text it out of the Bible to make it a biblical issue. Because then I'm a legalist. And people should see right through it, especially kids. And so, conservative is good if you mean biblical, but after that, if it's your preference, say it's your preference. And I can think of all kinds of examples, and I'm not going to use any of them. I even deleted some of them out of my notes because I didn't want to limit myself. But I can think of all kinds of things that parents don't want their kids to do and a lot of times they try to prove it with the Bible and it just ain't so. To use perfect grammar. Perfectly making my point. Just be careful. Say yes, say no, because you're a parent. But don't use the Bible unethically. God doesn't want that. Don't be like a Pharisee. That's what the Pharisees did. The, let's say the Bible, they looked at the Bible and God's, God's Word is, is creating a fence, boundaries, so that people didn't cross the boundaries uh, and sin. What they did, because they were so conservative and they really wanted to toe the party line, they created their own rules and regulations and put fences around the fences because they didn't want anyone to even get close. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be a Pharisee. You know how Jesus treated the Pharisees. Preference is one thing. The Bible is another. Oh, I want to use examples. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Let's move on to another family on the opposite side of the, the, the spectrum. Mr. and Mrs. Libertine. Mr. and Mrs. Libertine. Anything goes. Whatever little Joey or Billy or Sally wants to do, they can do because, you know, after all, they're just a kid. You say, my kids wouldn't be frustrated by that. They would like that. <laughs> sure, they might like it at first when you just say, you know what, whatever you want to do, you want to do because you're just a kid and I was just a kid and it's no big deal. And... But eventually, isn't that going to lead to frustration? If not sooner than later, it's going to lead to frustration when they get dropped into the culture. And there are guideposts, and there are rules, and there are standards, and there are regulations. And all of a sudden, there they are, in a lot of trouble. And if they're smart, they're going to put two and two together and figure out 
They didn't have any standards in life. They didn't, no one told them no. No one told them anything was right or anything was wrong. And it's no wonder they're ending up in a jail cell. Don't be that kind of person either. Let's move on to another family. Mr. and Mrs. Empty Threat. You want to frustrate your kids? Be like a family I saw the other day. I was having a tire replaced on my car and, and, and five times the kid is climbing on tires and they're high. The kid was, I don't know, seven or eight years old and he'd climb up and sit up on top of the tires and they're kind of doing this thing. And, you, know, you, you see it all the time. You see it at McDonald's. You see it at the restaurant. You see it wherever. And uh, don't do that. Get down. Get down or you're going to get disciplined. That's what it was. Five times. In fact, the dad even asked the, the, the little boy, how many times do I need to tell you this? He said, Dad, you've told me five. <laughs> you say, it's going to frustrate this kid. And eventually you know what's going to happen. The parents are going to get so frustrated, they're going to break and they're going to do something they wouldn't have done normally. So if you're, don't be an empty threat parent. If you say, if you do that, I'm going to discipline you, guess what? When they do it, discipline them. And your child won't like it. I know that. They'd rather have the five. But long-term perspective, it's going to be better. And you're not going to be a liar because you are a liar. Every five times over, the parent was a liar. Johnny, if you do that, I'll discipline you. The kid does it. If you do that, I'll discipline you. Lie, 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 lie. Right? That wasn't any good. Don't be an empty threat parent. If you have a standard, say this is the, this is the standard and we're going to do this. That way you're going to avoid the blow-up and the escalation and the frustration that happens. How about Mr. and Mrs. Mystic? Mr. and Mrs. Mystic perhaps wouldn't make it on your list. It took me a while to, to think of this one as I contemplated and tried to think through all the different things that would frustrate a child. The mystical family where somehow all the decision is made, decisions are made upon impressions from God and, and God speaking to them and, and God directly leading them as opposed to some kind of standard that would come from the Bible. I think you're going to frustrate kids, at least in the long term, because you don't, kids don't really know what is the standard. Well, it depends on what God told Daddy. It depends on what God told Mommy. I'm not really sure. And, and, and what was from God at one time isn't from God another time. And Just try to have biblical principles that you follow in your family. And say, this is what we're going to do. And this is what God's Word says. Or this is what Mom and Dad say. And you're not waiting for God to talk to us. Parents, just give guidance that's objective, that's reliable, that's as biblical as it possibly can be, and it's not always some new word from the Lord, because your kids are going to get frustrated by that because they can't count on it. Is that really God talking to mom and dad or not? It's stable. Another wrath-provoking family is Mr. and Mrs. question the kids' salvation every time they make a mistake. I made that one word. Spellcheck didn't like it. Question your kid's salvation every time they make a mistake. You know these kind of parents? Maybe you're some of these kind of parents. Oh, your, your son or daughter does something wrong. Maybe they even sin and you say, you know what? Uh, you're not supposed to do this because you say you're a Christian. Every since you said you're a Christian, look at what you do. Well, look what you're doing. Look how you're living and you say you're a Christian. Now I know 1 John 3.10 says the children of God and the children of the devil are what? Obvious. And it's based upon their actions. I know 2 Corinthians 13 says it's healthy for Christians to examine their, themselves to see whether they are in the faith. But the Bible doesn't teach sinless perfection this side of eternity. 
And I would love to follow a parent around like that who did that and pretend like their parent. Because I know they sin too. (laughs) Can you imagine that? There they are, pushing the kid, pushing the kid. Well, you say you're a Christian. What are you doing sinning? What are you doing getting in trouble? What are you doing getting a bad report? And, and on and on it goes. And I would just love to be that person playing parent with them. What are you doing sinning? What are you doing telling a lie? Why didn't you show up at work on time? Why did you clock in at the wrong time? You get the idea. You're going to frustrate your kid, and I would frustrate you to no end. Someone watching you. On the opposite extreme, Mr. and Mrs., I know my child is a Christian because I was there when they prayed the prayer. Spellcheck didn't like that one either. You never question whether or not little Billy is really a Christian when they're living like Satan. It's okay, I know, I've got the card, I know where you signed it, and I was there, and I led you in the prayer. And, and their little Billy, or whoever it is, grows up and affirmed, 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 and They're just so frustrated they can't live the Christian life because they're a Christian. Ah, What's with this Christianity and God stuff anyway? Oh, wrangle, wrath. Maybe they're not a Christian at all to begin with. And maybe if you'd help them understand that they really do need to examine themselves, see, it's balance. And they could think through whether or not they're a Christian because maybe they're not and they need to become a Christian so now they have the Holy Spirit in their life and they can live the Christian life and they're not frustrated. I really appreciate that little green booklet we sell out there uh, called Your Child's Profession of Faith because it really takes us as parents to task on both of these biblical issues. Christians are not perfect this side of eternity. But Christians do have changed lives. And you flesh that out in your home and with your children. How about Mr. and Mrs. We Play Favorites? Maybe you were raised in that kind of family. Doesn't mean we don't acknowledge some kids are different than other kids. In fact, every kid is different. If you have more than one, you know that. Doesn't mean some of them don't have unique needs. Absolutely. But you know what favoritism is. No doubt sometime in your life, whether it was by your parents or someone else, you felt it. And you know how frustrating it can be. Maybe even in the workplace. You get overlooked for the promotion because someone else is a favorite. In a classroom, maybe. Someone else is a teacher's pet. And you're actually the right person for it. Oh, frustrated. We as adults know how it is. Kids is the same way. They're watching. They know. Sometimes radically and extremely they're watching, aren't they? You want to do the best you can in the name of you don't want to push your child and make them angry needlessly, to be fair and honest to all your kids and to be consistent with your kids. What would your son or daughter say if you were to say to them, who does daddy love most out of all the kids? The interesting answer, assuming you have more than one. I had the nerve to try it yesterday with Jonathan. We were home, just the two of us, and I said, who does Daddy love the most? And I tried not to, to, to set him up for it. I just smiled, looking at him. And, and we've had a couple of days alone, so we were having a great time. And I thought, if ever he's going to say it, he's going to save me. <laughs> he said, you love all of us the most, Dad. And of course, inside, I've got to preach the sermon. I'm going, all right. 
I can use that as an illustration. <laughs> but I'm not so arrogant as to think that that's really true and he, that he really believes that. He may have just known that that's the right answer. In fact, I think he does know that's the right answer. So now it's, it's important for me as a father and it's important for you if you're a father and mother's helping to have him really believe that and to have him see that for 18 years or however long it is so that he doesn't get pushed to anger, to wrath, to frustration because dad plays favorites and I don't want any of the kids to be that way. Another wrath-provoking family I want to introduce you to is Mr. and Mrs. Daddy and Mommy just don't love each other anymore. You can buy the best counseling, you can buy the best medication, or whatever else, but you are not going to stop your child from being frustrated when you get a divorce. It's just not going to happen. There's all kinds of books out there, there's all kinds of things you can do to try to help, but guess what? You're going to frustrate your kids. There's going to be some anger there, there's going to be some some. some Trouble there inside. It's just how it is. It's a fact. There's going to be exasperation, embitterment. And some of you can't help it because you're the one who's been abandoned and who's left. And that's hard. And God's grace is sufficient as we know. But some of you can prevent it. And maybe if no one else has ever told you, I should tell you that the Christian life isn't all about you and your feelings. It just isn't. Here we are in Ephesians, and we've learned all that God has done for us. He's saved us, sealed us, adopted us, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Oh, it's so good all He's done for us. And the Christian life is responding to that. It's not about us. It's all about us responding in thankful obedience to God. It's not about whether or not I feel like loving someone or I don't feel like my needs are being met anymore. It's all about me responding to God who's done such great things. And one of the things He expects me to do now that I've experienced His grace is love my wife and not frustrate my children. Another family that provokes wrath is Mr. and Mrs. Abuse. Besides the fact that I think you could use a good beating if you beat your kids. Probably won't hear that in any other pulpit today, but I thought I could say it because I think it's true. You're going to frustrate your kids. Whether it's verbal abuse, physical abuse, which is illegal and wrong and flies in the face of Christianity in every way, shape, or form. I I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian. Big enough group like this, though, I'm assuming it probably happens. Yes, I know the Bible says in Proverbs 22.15, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. I know the Bible says, Proverbs 13.24, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The Bible teaches that you discipline your children, no question about it. But if you abuse your kids, you are frustrating your kids, among other things you're doing wrong. Because when you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And guess what? You can now discipline your children and at the same time have the fruit of the Spirit as you do it, which is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. Oh, how about another one to underline? Kindness. 
They're not separate. They're together. So you don't beat your kids. You will frustrate them. Another wrath-provoking family, and there are a few more. Mr. and Mrs. were too busy working. You know that family? I read somewhere this week someone said, love is spelled T-I-M-E. I thought, that's not bad. It's not biblical. This passage we're studying here, Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Then it goes on to say that we're to train them and discipline them and bring them up. Guess what that assumes, guys? You're spending time with them, right? You can't train them. You can't bring them up if you work all the time and you can't spend any time with them. Now, that doesn't mean swing the pendulum over that you shouldn't work. The Bible says work. In fact, we're going to see that. And you work as unto the Lord. It doesn't mean you shouldn't serve in the church because you're supposed to. Every Christian has a gift and we're all supposed to serve. We're fellow ministers. You're supposed to do that. But you better spend time with your kids too. Because there's no way you can do Ephesians 6.4 if you don't spend time with them. For me, this means I can't have all the stuff I want. There's more stuff that I like. I get on the internet and look at stuff that I'd like to buy. You, any of you do that? Any of you get magazines? You look at stuff and you see a car, you see whatever. And some of that stuff I can't have because I know I can't just get another job so I can then have more stuff and then I can not spend any time with my kids. Even though my kids get confused about this sometimes. Jonathan and I were having dinner the other night. Mom and the girls are out of town and we're sitting there and he said, Dad, I think you should get another job. <laughs> I said, oh, really? We're having a pretty sophisticated conversation sitting there. And, okay, why do you think that, Jonathan? Well, because I think you should buy me a dirt bike. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I think Jonathan should have a dirt bike. I had a dirt bike when I was a kid. I loved dirt. I, the great idea. I would love to buy him a dirt bike. I've looked at those on the internet. Okay, I'll confess. I'm not going to get another job so I can do that because then I can't spend time with him and do what's even more important than the dirt bike, right? I've got to say no to certain things, even for my kids. I asked Jonathan afterward, I said, do you understand that, son? Sort of. <laughs> Another family that you don't want to be like is Mr. and Mrs. Hypocrite. You know this family too. They say, uh, they expect one thing and then they themselves do another. Their motto is what? Do as I say, not as I do. They're hypocrites. Jesus wasn't very fond of hypocrites either in this earthly ministry. Don't feed your kids that lie. Do as I say, not as I do. Then you're a hypocrite and guess what they're learning to be? They're learning to be a hypocrite. That's all. That's what's happening. Some of the bitterest kids I've ever met are kids that have been raised in a so-called Christian family where the fathers and mother and or is ungodly. Oh, they go to church. They serve. They put their money in the thing. They stand up at the right time. They sit at the right time. You know, they have a smile. But they're ungodly people. And the kids see it. And the kids hate it. And guess what? They're provoked to anger. They're provoked to frustration. They're frustrated with Christianity. I have an example of that too, but we're running out of time. Well, we're never going to get done with this as it is, so I might as well give it to you, right? It's all free today. I've already gotten myself in trouble at least once, so I give another example. 
You don't want to be a hypocrite. Say, all right, we've got to go to church and we're supposed to study the Bible and you've got to do the Christian thing and, and you've got to serve the Lord and you've got to love the Lord. And If you don't do that, men, probably the most frustrating thing you can do for your kids is you can tell them to do things that you yourself don't do. I remember one time I was speaking at a high school graduation banquet and there was a, a, a son sitting here right in front of me and the father sitting right there front and center and it wasn't like it was going to be a, a 90-minute discourse. It was for me to address the, the, the young people because they're graduates and to give them something inspiring. I don't know what it was. But anyway, here I am. I wasn't five seconds into it. Here's the dad. Doing one of these. He wasn't quite snoring, but you get the idea. And it wasn't like I was talking in a monotone voice like I usually do with no energy or inflection. It was going to be a short little thing and I was probably about ten times more fired up as I am now because I was a little bit younger, I guess. I don't know. But there, uh, without being arrogant, there wasn't anything boring about it and I was talking to his son. And he wants to know why little Jimmy isn't going to be the model college student. I know why little Jimmy isn't going to be the model college student. Because Jimmy Sr. isn't the model Christian. He doesn't really care about the things of the Lord. He's not into it. He's not committed. And it just would happen over and over again. These kinds of things. Look at parents and guess what you're probably going to see. That's how their kids are going to be. Not always. You're going to frustrate your kids. Another family that's a wrath-provoking family is Mr. and Mrs. Perfectionist. Everything is what's wrong. Nothing is what's right. Do you always criticize your kids? And the only time you talk to them is when they're doing something wrong? Or do you give it some balance and encourage them with what's right? I like the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1. He's not talking about parenting, but in chapter 1 he says, admonishing every man. That's correcting. And teaching every man. There's the negative and there's the positive. You're telling them what's wrong and then you're telling them what's right. You've got both. And so you don't want to be the parent that, the, that always thinks that the glass is half empty and the glass can be half full. Here's another one. I'll use a biblical word. Training. Parenting is training children. If you're supposed to train your children, guess what? Think of it as training. They're in training. You've got to have the big picture perspective. It's not game day every day. You're going to train that child for approximately, if you have them this long, 18 years. By then, it's probably over and done with, so maybe we should make it younger. You're training that child, almost like you're training someone for a competition in a race. And this race is called the race of life. And so you, they don't have to have arrived when they're five. It's long-term training, discipline, teaching them right, teaching them wrong, bringing them along, and you're thinking big picture perspective. What I'm trying to do here is raise someone so when they're 18, if that's when they go, they're not only a responsible citizen, they can think like a Christian, they can act like a Christian, and you've trained them up in the way that they're supposed to go, and Lord willing, they will go in that way. That keeps me from being a perfectionist. Because otherwise, I'm going to aggravate my kids. Mr. and Mrs. Bad Theology. Frustration. There's an incentive. No theology so you don't frustrate your kids. Maybe I'll just use one example of bad theology. The theology that says, 
Oh, if you're a faithful Christian, you should be healthy and happy. Some people believe that theology. That'd be one good example of what I would say is bad theology. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. I suffered, you'll suffer. It's bad theology to say if you're really a committed Christian, you'll be healthy and happy. Read Job. I try to read that to my kids lately. I don't recommend it for a while. It was tough going. Job was the godliest man around and he wasn't healthy and he wasn't happy. But you try to teach your kids, well, you know, if you do all the right things and you're going to be healthy and you're going to be happy and everything's going to be good, you're feeding them something that isn't true. You're giving them non-Christian expectations. What about when they do get sick? What about when they get really sick? What about when there's a tumor? What about when dad dies? What about failure, 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 failure? You get the idea. They don't believe in that God anymore. Teach them a Christian worldview, good theology, how to understand suffering, how to understand evil, how to understand persecution, good theology. And they won't be frustrated. All right, one more. Mr. and Mrs. Force my kid to be the athlete that I never was. I raced bicycles for like seven years, traveled all around the United States, and uh, I had the opposite extreme. I think my dad went to one bike race. And I suppose if I had to trade for my dad versus the other dads who would be there screaming and yelling at the finish line and yelling at the other kids and doing all this stuff, I'd rather have it my way any day. And we're really caught up in this. We live in a affluent culture where people have a lot of free time. We do athletics and we want our, every one of our kids to be Michael Jordan or somebody else. And we're just freaky about it. We're so freaky about it that, that mothers of cheerleaders try to have the other cheerleaders and the mothers knocked off with hitmen so that our daughters make it. It happened in Texas not that long ago. She only went for the other mother because she didn't have enough money to actually pay for the daughter to be knocked off. We're really committed to this athletic thing. Just be careful. I'm into athletics. Paul uses athletic metaphors, athletic imagery. We strive for the gospel. All these, I think it's great. Teaches discipline, teaches focus, teaches commitment. Great idea. But just be real careful that you're not pushing your daughter or pushing your son to be something you wish you could have been or you never were or something like that to the point where they just say, enough! I can't do this. And it happens to kids. Why do that? There's no reason to do that. I don't want to try to live vicariously through my kids. Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. It's as clear as could be. I never spend this much time on application. But maybe it's my own heart that shows me and tells me we're going to spend more time on application today because I understand the verse. I just don't understand how to live it out of my life. And maybe if all of our kids were perfect and you know, kid, crime is down with youth and everything's positive and boy, we've got it all figured out, I would have just said, you know what, here it is, guys, we're doing a great job. That's anything but true. And so today my big burden has been for you men 
and it will be next week it looks like, (laughs) to be doers of the Word, as James says, and not merely hearers, the Bible says, who delude themselves. The parenting thing is a big deal, men. we got to do it. It's as important as any other area of your Christian life. And we can do it with the grace of God. It's not complicated. We're going to talk about it next week as well. Let's pray and we'll close and be out of here. Father, thank You for this morning and for the time we're able to spend in Your Word. And Lord, You're clear about what You want us to do. We just don't always know how to do it. And some of us men need serious repentance in our life. And we need to come before You and bow and confess our sin to You. And This would be an appropriate time to do that right now. Lord, some of the men here no doubt have children who have already gone. And maybe their parenting endeavor has been a failure to one degree or another. And Lord, I pray that uh, that too could be confessed to You. And Lord, that it wouldn't be a needless uh, ongoing burden knowing that You are a God who forgives and You are a God who gives us hope. But that we might do all we can to make a difference maybe in the lives of other children that we still have in the lives of our grandchildren, in the lives of other children, maybe even in this church who are not our own, that we can encourage other parents. Lord, I thank You so much for uh, godly women who are part of this church who can help their husbands in this endeavor, in this ministry, this commitment. I pray that as changes happen in our homes, that it wouldn't unnecessarily frustrate wives. I'm sure that there are men who are feeling convicted and they need to be better leaders pray that they would use wisdom in the way they make that transition. And I pray for wives that they would understand that husbands do need to change and they might be experiencing some changes in their home as a result of that. And that might not be easy. But Lord, take us where we are and move us to greater Christ-likeness. Father, we would beg of You and plead that You would not leave us the same as we are right now. That in the next week, in the next months, in the next year, for the rest of our lives, we would be more godly. And that as men and fathers, we would be more godly in that area as well, that we would not stagnate, we would not go backward, that we could become the men that you would want us to be. Perhaps even to ask forgiveness from our wives, maybe even our children, that we would live like men are supposed to live strong yet compassionate, godly, loving fathers who will give all the credit to You, the great God of salvation who's given us this instruction that is so helpful. In Jesus' name, Amen.